Thanks for listening to the podcast of Hope Church in East Hampton, Connecticut. Our mission is to love God, love people, and serve the world. To find out more about Hope Church, be sure to check out our website at cthope.com. Well, good morning, Hope Church. It is really good to see all your faces here today. And you may be wondering, um, I know it's a little bit different this morning, um, why am I up here singing? Where are Tom and the rest of the worship team? Um, And so some of you have probably heard by now that um, Tom's dad, Ed, is in the hospital and um, and they're waiting and hoping and we're praying together that God um, is able to just heal him. Um, But that is why we are not having the service quite as we normally would. And so I just want to take a pause for a minute and um, just pray together over Ed and, um, and really over all this morning who are hurting and waiting on God. God, we come to you right now because you, um, we know, are the one who is the holder and sustainer of us, even in the broken times. And we're praying specifically for Ed and Gala, and we're asking God for your healing over him. And we're praying um, just for your power and might that we just sing about, um, that you would just um, bring that to Ed at this moment. And I pray, um, even as we wait, that you would be with his family, with, with Tom and Leanne and all the, the sisters and brothers and, um, and with Debbie. And we're just asking for your peace to flood that family. Um, and God, we know that, um, that you hold us regardless of the outcome, but we're just, we're just coming together as your, as your um, sons and daughters to ask you for this miracle for Ed. And we pray that in your name, God. Amen. So I know that's a little bit of a heavy way to start the morning, um, but I I think it ties in a little bit even to this idea of Advent and this waiting that we're all experiencing, even as we lead up to Christmas, as we lead up to this reminder that what we're truly hoping for all of us, no matter what our circumstances, no matter where we are, we're all longing and desperate for this hope that nothing but Jesus can satisfy and so I would ask you this morning, what would be something that you would, that you're so passionate about, that you would stand up in public and you would shout it out? Like, and I don't just mean like on Facebook, like, you know, tweet about it or like say it online where no one's actually going to, you know, talk back to you. What would you be willing to stand up like in a supermarket or just somewhere super public and just shout out at the top of your lungs? Yeah. Yay! <laughs> Thanks, Justine. So I always think of this time of year of Elf. Who has watched Elf? Anyone, anyone have like a favorite quote, I'm sure, from that movie? Yes. So one of my favorite quotes is when we have the, the image here, hopefully, of, of Elf. And he stands up and he says, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. And he's so excited. And if you've seen the movie, you know that Buddy the Elf just cannot contain himself, much like my seven-year-old son. Just everything is like, ah, here we are. And I, if I feel something, if he feels something, he's going to express it loud and publicly because that is who he is. And you get the sense if you watch Buddy that everything that he, that he says is something that he feels and believes deeply, right? Um, and so I feel like he's a perfect example of someone who's just going to run with something, make a fool of himself in public, 
And it, it actually makes me think then of the song that as Sherry mentioned, we're gonna be talking about today, Go Tell It on the Mountain, because this song is truly a song about, you know, forget the supermarket, forget, forget any, you know, other regular public space. I did something that people are willing to climb to the top of a mountain and shout out for the whole world to hear. So it makes me wonder, what, what is this song? What are these words that is worth shouting to the whole world for everyone to hear. And so to find out, I want to take us back to kind of the roots and the origin of this song so we can maybe get a little better idea. So the interesting thing about Go Tell It on the Mountain, we have other songs we've talked about that we have, you know, a clear person that wrote the, the words out or someone that compiled the, the music. And in this case, we are not actually sure who originally wrote the song, Go Tell It on the Mountain. We know that it was a song, a spiritual song, probably sung by slaves on plantations, and it was probably, probably dates back to at least 1865. And so the interesting thing about this song is that it would have been sung, and it would not even have been recorded initially, but it would have been passed down orally from, from person to plantation to plantation, and from generation to generation. And it wasn't until uh, 1907, uh, there's a man named John Wesley Work Jr., and he is considered the first African-American collector of spiritual folk songs and African folk songs and spirituals. And so he recorded the song, Go Tell It on the Mountain. In 1907, it was published in his work, New Jubilee Songs and Folk Songs of the American Negro. And he, he published this work, and he went to a college called Fisk University. And there, he was part of leading a choir called the Fisk Singers. And so not only did he, did he search for all these songs, these spiritual songs, and compile them, but then he and the Fisk Singers, um, which you can see here behind me, this is John and the, the choir that he would sing with. And they would go around and they would sing many of these songs. And what's amazing to me is that for, for many, especially white audiences, this was the first time that they would hear some of these songs sung by African voices. And I am telling you, there is something that cannot be replicated there's something about the soul of words and the meaning that could not have been duplicated by anyone else other than those who had known the roots of slavery and the deep freedom that that song was truly talking about. And so what work did, what, what John did was to preserve this song and to, to pass it on and to allow it to be a part of our lives today as well. And, you know, it reminds me a little bit, actually, of the Bible itself. Because, you know, the Bible, the earliest chapters of the Bible, the earliest stories were recorded, were, were about a time before we had the written word available. There were no, no written or um, alphabets. There was no way to record the stories. And so the, the stories of God and creation would have been handed down and carefully preserved orally, passed down from person to person. Um, and in fact, I was reading a book, uh, I believe it was, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and it's by Amy Bird, and it talks about how even though there's no female authors of the Bible, it's, it's believed that women were probably considered tradents or those who helped pass down these sections of scripture and preserve what we now have as the Holy Bible. And it's such an amazing thought to think, to think that, um, that people would memorize these sections, these stories, and that in this way, they were literally preserved for us today. Um, 
I was, re- I was researching about this, actually. Um, they found the stone outside of Jerusalem in 2005, and it's known now as the Zayit Stone. And it has what appears to be the earliest um, potential representation of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and so it's just interesting to me to see that, that 1000 BC, perhaps, was, is the earliest record we have of this Hebrew alphabet, and yet we have these stories that were preserved and saved for so long. But even after the Bible was preserved and written down, there were still people throughout history who have taken it upon themselves to, to learn the words by heart, to, to memorize sections, and to pass down the scriptures to their kids and their grandkids. And in fact, I think as we're talking about the Christmas story, I think of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And if you've read her story, she sings this beautiful song we know as the Magnificat. And she sings this song of praise to God for what he's done and who he is. And if you read through Mary's, um, Mary's song, you will notice that she references many, many Old Testament scriptures. But the interesting thing is that Mary probably would not have been able to read. She would probably not have been taught to read because she was a woman. And in that time, they were not um, educated in the same way that men were. And so Mary must have learned much of the scripture by heart. And much like the singers of Go Tell It on the Mountain, those words were indelibly written, not just in her mind, but in her soul. And you can see that in the way that she sings praises to God. The words that she sang, the words that she spoke were not mere words. They had changed her life. She had encountered the living God and it showed up in the way that she spoke. So why, why would someone take such great care to preserve the words of the Bible? Or why would Mary take such care to learn and memorize all this scripture and hand it down? And I believe it's probably a very similar reason for why John Wesley Work Jr. wanted to preserve this song, Go Tell It on the Mountain, and all these other spiritual songs. Because the songs themselves had a message that was far beyond the words. It was a message of hope and it was a message of freedom. And so the Bible was preserved and the song was preserved to be a witness. To be a witness to the words and to be a witness to the full freedom that the words bring. And I believe that that is what we are called to be in our lives as, as believers and followers of God, we were made to be a witness to God, to his word, to his light. Uh, Psalm 89, talks, 37 talks about how the moon is the faithful witness in the sky. And it's this idea that the moon is a faithful witness to the sun. And simply by, by standing there and, and reflecting this beautiful light, it's a reminder in the dark night for us that the sun is still there, the light is still shining and we get to be that to a dark world. In fact, John 1, 6 through 14, a couple weeks ago I talked about how Jesus is the light of the world. And this passage continues to say uh, that there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist you may know him as. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, it did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, 
To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. God came. He came to be with us and to live among us and dwell in us. And we get to be witnesses to that light like John the Baptist was, like the moon is for the sun. We are a witness to this powerful light that has come into this world. And I think, I think sometimes when we think about witnessing to people, we think about just kind of passing on the right theology or passing down the right verses and, and making sure that people, people know how to keep Christ in Christmas. And, and yes, there's, there's a time for passing on those things and sharing wisdom and truth. But I believe that God is more interested and he doesn't just want us to pass on mere words. He wants us to live and embody the gospel with our lives. He wants us to, to um, we're, as children of the light, he wants us to be light in this world as he was. Isaiah 43, 10 through 12 continues this idea of a witness it says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, and not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. I love that this, this passage, it says, uh, it almost sounds like overkill in verse 10. He says, so that you may know and believe and understand. These all sound like the same thing. But if we break it down, I think it's, it's God saying, I want you to, to like know in your heart and believe in your mind and, and fully understand with all your soul I want you not just to know something academically. I want you to experience me in your lives because that is how you're going to be a witness to me. And if the world looks at you, are they gonna see me? If the world looks at you, are they gonna know that I am God? Are they gonna hear your story? Are they gonna hear the life you have in your life? Are they gonna know that I am God? And this is who John was. And this is who we are made to be, a witness. And Jesus continues this theme of, of us being a witness to him when he shares with his disciples. This is after he died and was raised again to life. He talks with the disciples and he says, says then he opened their minds. It goes back to that idea of he reveals himself to us. He, he reveals his word to us. So he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And so again, he's saying, he's saying you're the ones who've lived and breathed and walked with me. And you have seen all these things that have happened and your lives have been changed. And so you are my witnesses to go into the world and share this light and this hope. 
we get to be a witness to who God is, to his mission. We're, we're ambassadors. And John reminds us that we're the light of the world. And the world desperately needs some light right about now. And as representatives of the light, as I said, our lives are made to bear witness to God, to God's love and his hope and his freedom. We live in a world, like I said, where people are desperate for God. They're desperate for hope. Um, In fact, I would ask you, when we are looking to the world to give them hope, have we stopped to ask how that hope has changed ourselves what it is about God's hope, about his lordship in our life that changes us, and how, what about Christ's love is going to offer change and hope to those around us. Last Sunday, um, I I wasn't actually in church. I ended up having to go to the ER with someone and, and sit with them and wait and make sure they were okay. And, you know, I was struck by the fact that as I was looking around all these people that were, that were sitting and some people were, were sick and some people were mentally unwell and, and there were people that were waiting for loved ones and then being back and in the, the back rooms and just witnessing all these people that I became so overwhelmed by this sense of, of just the brokenness and the heaviness around me. And looking and saying, these are people that may never come to my church or to any church at all. And yet these are exactly the people that I know Jesus would have been with, would have loved, and would have been caring for. I read a quote this week that said, if it won't play in a cancer ward, it isn't the gospel. Man, that that really like hit me hard. If what we're offering to the world isn't isn't gonna stand up or hold up in a cancer world, then it's probably short of the gospel. It's probably not powerful enough. And it really caused me to ask myself, what is it that I'm offering to the world? I had this conversation with my dad um, a while back. We were talking about one of his neighbors that I know has um, a mental delay. And there are people, again, that we look around and we say, well, what does the gospel mean for this person? What does the gospel mean for that person that I met in the hospital ward that was waiting for their, their mom? What, is the, what does the gospel mean for the little 12-year-old boy that I saw that was, that was struggling with mental health? What does the gospel mean for those people? And I, I ask us to wrestle, not just to leave us in this, in this tension place, but to really force us to hold up what we, what we have in our hand that we're believing and to say, God, is this really the fullness of what you offer? Is this really your gospel or is this a cheap version that I'm kind of distracting myself with? I know it seems like there's supposed to be an easy answer, but I think we have to pause sometimes and and let it sink in and allow those words that we read and the songs that we sing to really penetrate our hearts and become entwined with our souls so that what we say from the mountaintop truly comes from a place of personal experience. And if you're wrestling, I would like to give you one idea that I believe is connected to the gospel that that allows us to see this fuller picture of what God's gospel is and how it is meant to reach and impact a broken world. Because I believe that there is this direct correlation between God's gospel and his love and justice for the world and the broken things in the world. Isaiah 51, four through five says, listen to me, my people, hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. 
we've already discussed that Jesus is the light. And I believe here Isaiah is making the connection that the light is also synonymous with justice. That God, that Jesus is both light and justice. And so when he comes, it is not just with empty words, but it is with a justice that will change the world around us. And when we live in God's light, when we become children of the light, we begin to, to act on the justice of God, the justice of his kingdom. He is making all things new. He's redeeming broken things in the present. But also he's, he's, he's leading us to um, a kingdom eventually that we know will live, that will have the full justice of God. But in the meantime, we know that God is also conforming us and conforming those around us according to his justice and his kingdom. His words are always connected with justice and with freedom. Even James 1, 22 through 27 talks about this. It says, do not merely listen to the word, which is what we're talking about, right? Don't just read it. Don't just, don't just like academically understand it and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but do not, does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Did you catch that phrase again? God's perfect law that gives freedom. And continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it. They will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue. Deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. When we look at the life of Jesus, when we look at the justice of Jesus, we must understand that it is connected to tangible actions of justice, that God is calling us to be a light, um, not just where there's already a bunch of light, but in the darkness where people are broken and hurt and sick and marginalized, maybe people in a hospital room, maybe people in a jail cell, maybe people that you, that you wonder if anyone else would actually talk to. Maybe it's people that the church sometimes, in our theology, we, we shut people out. We make people feel like this isn't a place for them, and yet that is exactly the opposite of what Jesus was about. And if we look at the life of Jesus, man, Jesus wasn't just about meeting people who were on the margins. Jesus was on the margins. We know this because he came to this earth and he lived as a refugee when he was a baby. And he lived in poverty. And we know this because even his his parents went to the temple to dedicate him when he was a baby. And in Leviticus Um, there's a a sacrifice that you're meant to give for a firstborn son, and it's a sacrifice of a lamb. But Leviticus says, if you aren't able to afford a lamb, you can bring two two pigeons or two young doves. And that, that sacrifice of poverty, that's what Mary and Joseph gave. They didn't have money. Jesus was not born into wealth. He was born on the margins of society. And beyond that, Jesus' whole life was spent with, with the tax collectors, with prostitutes, with, with um, the people that were sick and dying and hopeless. That was who Jesus was around all the time. 
I just read a quote from a book called Burying White Privilege by Miguel Torres, and he says, no one obtains occupancy in heaven without a reference letter from the dispossessed. No one obtains occupancy in heaven without a reference letter from the dispossessed. And while I would push back a little bit on that, because I believe that Jesus alone is our salvation, that there's nothing we can do to merit or earn that salvation, I would say that Jesus, our, Jesus himself is our reference letter to God on our behalf. And yet, I think this quote, even if it grates a little bit on me, it has a powerful, powerful reminder for me that that is truly what Jesus was about. And Jesus desires that I do not live my life in some ivory tower, hold up away from people who are suffering and hurting, but that I go to those who are needy and poor and broken. And not just to help and love them, but because you know what, I really think that there is something of Jesus's face that we see most powerfully in those around us who are hurting and suffering. That there's something of the face of Jesus that we don't see, that we would miss if we don't spend time with those that society says aren't worth it. Are we living as Jesus would have us live? Are we being a light in those dark places as Jesus wants us to do? And I want to be clear here that justice, as much as it sounds good, and I think it's kind of a buzzword right now in our culture, and it's a, it's a great thing that we're focused on justice, but it is truly not something we can do apart from God in our lives. I believe that God's light and his life dwell within us, and unless we allow him to change us and shape us, we will not live out the justice as he desires. But... As the song, Go Tell It on the Mountain, reminds us, um, God's word is living and active, and it is always meant to point people towards freedom. I think it's interesting that the song, Go Tell It on the Mountain, was later um, used and adapted by the, by the musical group Peter, Paul, and Mary to address the civil rights movement of the 1960s, and the lines were changed to say, Go Tell It on the Mountain to Let My People Go. And I love that the, that the roots of this song and the freedom of this song were carried over to continue to perpetuate this idea that freedom is not just something we sing about. It is something we fight for. It is something we fight for until everyone is equal and feels that equality. And so the song, again, was not just words, but it was, it was meant to be a powerful chain breaker like the song we sang earlier, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. Everything about God and his love and his freedom are about breaking chains, both physical chains and spiritual chains in our lives. And so when we sing or when we say, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is Lord, we must become aware of the deep meaning of freedom that Jesus wants to offer to all of us. We must find a Jesus that is bigger than, than our nativity sets and the temporary hope of the Christmas season alone. We must encounter Jesus who breaks shackles off of our souls and any chains, even invisible ones, that are imposed, that are not in line with God's kingdom. What we shout from the mountain, we must first encounter deeply in our hearts. And what we shout from the mountain must be true, not just for people in towers and cathedrals, those who, who have money or power or prestige, but it must resonate with those who are also in the valleys, in the low places, in the hurting places, those who are waiting for news from a doctor, those, those who are, are waiting 
on hope, who are waiting paycheck to paycheck. The gospel that we believe in must be big enough for those who are hungry both in soul and in body. And so I want to ask you a few questions as we're wrapping up. Why is the good news of Jesus truly good news for all? Why is the good news of Jesus truly good news for all? And second, aside from keeping Christ in Christmas, which I know we want to do, we want to pass those, those truths on to those around us, but, but are we also allowing Christ's room in our lives, room to dwell with us, to, to be with us? Are we spending time with him and encountering him so that we can share with power as a witness to what he's done? And if Jesus is synonymous, synonymous with both light and justice, how are we living as a witness to him? And so I would encourage you, and this is not something that I think you're just going to walk out today and be like, oh, I got the answers, now I know, right? It's going to take time. And I, actually, I believe that's why God, God comes to be with us, to be in process with us, and to continue to change us over time. I don't expect us to have the answers necessarily today or even this week. But I want to encourage you to join me on this ongoing experience of God's love that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is good, that he is here, and his presence truly changes us. And so I know it has been a heavy week, and I know that you may feel heavy as well, and, and maybe not just for Ed. I know there's many out there who are, who are hurting, who are wrestling, who are in pain. And I do not want to leave us in this place of doubt. I actually want to encourage us to find a hope that is so much bigger than we dared to believe possible. I find myself sometimes at this time of year, I almost feel like Advent is this time where um, I'm almost putting to test all these things that I, that I sometimes put my hope in. And I realize how often I put my hope in a cheapened gospel and I allow myself to be numbed and distracted by something less than God's fullness and best. Listen, anytime we try to take away from the gospel, if there's ever a time where we take away from Jesus, then we, are, we end up with an empty gospel, a gospel that is not fully of Jesus. If we try to take the light and hope of Jesus without his justice, it's emptiness. If we try to take the peace of the Spirit without the conviction of the Spirit to change and grow us, it's an empty gospel. If we try to take the authority of God without his mercy for us that covers over a multitude of sins, it's an empty gospel. Anytime we take something away from Jesus, we're going to end up with an empty gospel. But the opposite is also true. Anytime we try to add something to Jesus, it's also going to be emptiness, right? If I try to take Jesus and all my other ways of numbing, I'm going to feel empty at the end of the day. If I say God is enough, but then I demand that all my circumstances are fixed and changed, I'm going to, I'm going to end up disappointed. If I, if I believe that God is the ultimate and the only Savior, and yet I say, oh, well, I better just do a few extra good works this week just in case to make God happy, man, I'm striving I'm striving towards an empty gospel. 
Guys, I want us to rest in the, in the fullness of who God is and what he's done for us. I want you to leave here knowing that you have a hope for today, a hope that compels us to live and love in tangible ways. And yet we also have a hope that goes beyond the grave. We have a hope that will never fade or die or perish. That is the hope of the gospel, that Jesus came, that he died, that he loved us so much that wherever you are, that whoever you are, he's with you and he's there for you. And he came to restore your soul and to restore your life and to make all things new. That is the God I believe in. And I want us to be reminded of that deep in our, whole, deep in our souls and in our hearts. My prayer is that God will show us deep in our hearts the fullness of his gospel the hope beyond any circumstance here on earth. And so I'm gonna leave you with this passage from Colossians 3, 15 through 17 as we wrap up. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As we close out today, um, I'm just gonna sit here for one minute and just give us a chance to have space I think space is so critical, especially in this time when we're running from the mall to the kids' soccer to the, it's not soccer season maybe for some of you, but uh, we're, we're running around, we're bouncing around, and I just want to give us a moment for space. God, God, more than the twinkling lights, more than the, um, the presence, more than being fixed in this moment from illness or from any other thing, God, what we most want is you. God, I pray that you would just meet us in this moment. Give us a space to encounter you deep in our souls. We just want to bring to you right now anything that is weighing us down, God. Hurts and broken expectations the places that we doubt. We just want to lay those at your feet, God. And God, would you show us right now the places where we're trusting in a gospel that falls short of your truth? Where are we resting in things that, that are more distracting and numbing and aren't really fulfilling us? God, as we walk out of this room today, would you resurrect a hope in our hearts? Would you, would you resurrect the word, your word in our lives, God? Would you fill us with, the, with understanding 
as you did for your disciples, as you did for those walking on the road to Emmaus with you, would you open our eyes to have revelation, to know who you are and how your goodness changes us. And God, may you send us with power into the world, into the darkness, to be a light for your name. We pray this in your name. Amen.